before we look into the Word. Our Father, we take a moment here in our busy schedules to take time to think, hear your Word, to think about it, to contemplate it, to meditate upon it, to consider it carefully, and to think through the implications of it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would have his way in using the word that is God-breathed, and we pray that you would apply it to each of our hearts and sow the seeds of hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, I don't want to sound like a redundant messenger, but I guess you know by now that uh, our youngest son and his wife are expecting their first child in May. We actually got to hear the heartbeat, a recording of the heartbeat <coughs> over the break. And uh, they told us uh, that they are planning a gathering, a celebration, if you will, on the 27th of December, uh, December which is the day that uh, our daughter-in-law has her next ultrasound. They're going to have a gender reveal party. I've never been invited to one of these, but um, they tell me that is the latest uh, uh, celebration. And I'm not sure how they're going to celebrate this. They learn the gender of the baby, and I guess they put that information in an envelope, and the doctor does, and then they take it home, and then I guess they make it known to somebody, and then somebody prepares either a, a box of balloons, and the balloons, all helium blues, all are one color. It's either blue or Sorry, blue. Yeah, blue or, or pink. Uh, or there's a cake, and the cake's frosted, and so they cut in the cake, and you see what color of the cake is, blue or pink, something like that. Um, and, of course, with our technological abilities nowadays, they can not only, because they know this information in advance, so early on in the pregnancy, of course, many of the people, couples, they will name their baby while it's still in the womb. Uh, which is a little bit different from the way we used to do it, but uh, it's all good. It's all good. And I've come across, as I've thought about this phenomenon, uh, in Matthew 1, maybe you'll have your Bible open, we'll look at Matthew 1, there's an amazing, I call it a first century gender reveal announcement. First century. It's accompanied by an angelic messenger that... Uh, gets involved here, verse 20 of chapter 1 in Matthew, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 21 is really the reveal, and she will bear a son. So we're going to have some blue, right? They would have, that's blue at that point. Uh, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. It's interesting that uh, we're introduced now to this impoverished couple, Mary and Joseph. They are betrothed, which is the technical name. It, it means that they are legally bound together, if you will. They're legally pledged together in marriage. It's as if they are married, but they're not, they have never joined together physically. And here they are, never having been intimate physically. They're expecting a child. 
And so no wonder Joseph is considering his options, it says in this text earlier on there in chapter 1. This is a shocking news to him, obviously. And so after deciding to put his wife, his wife is in quotes there, of course, but it means basically that she's obligated to be his wife and he's obligated to be her husband. Well, he's going to put her away privately by divorce, which is something that he was allowed and permitted and it would be customary to do. But this angel interrupts, and so Joseph is told the backstory. He's told that the baby that Mary is carrying is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 21 again, at the gender reveal moment, Joseph learns that the baby is a boy and that that boy is also given a name by the angel, Yeshua, or Jesus which means Jehovah is salvation, or it means Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. So we have a not, not in any way an ordinary pregnancy, and we do not have in any way an ordinary baby to be born, because this one was going to carry out an unheard of mission of saving God's people from their sins. Now, I've chosen this, this particular year to focus on our Advent series. I know we're one week behind, so we'll carry on, and on Christmas Day we'll finish our series and have uh, five messages. But um, I, I, I want to focus this morning and our, begin our series on the different names that God made known about His Son when Jesus was born. These are unique, one-of-a-kind, is it Jesus a unique, one-of-a-kind baby? And I want us to think about what we learned this morning, and that was his name is Jesus. Now you say, this is so easy, fundamental, such straightforward. Why are you having a whole sermon on this? Follow me here. I want to answer three questions or look at three points under the heading of the name of Jesus. First of all, what is the promise of sending a Savior revealed to us about God? What do we learn about God because he has chosen to do this? Secondly, what do we learn about ourselves? And what do we learn about Jesus' mission? First of all, what do we learn about God? Well, first thing we have to understand about God in the backdrop of this story is that God is holy. You see, God hates sin. And sinners who defy His supreme authority, sinners who reject His laws, are not allowed nor are they permitted to dwell in His presence. You see, God's reaction to sin is called His wrath. And I give in your notes there in your bulletin a definition that J.I. Packer came up with about the wrath of God. He said, is God's righteousness reacting to unrighteousness? Jerry Bridges put it this way. God's wrath is His justice in action. It is rendering to everyone His just due. And so it's not surprising then to read, if that's true of God, Psalm 5 would say then, the psalmist says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil can dwell with you. Also in Nahum chapter 1, God is described as avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty 
unpunished. This is an important aspect to understand about why a Savior named Jesus would be sent by God. Because God faces a dilemma here. He cannot overlook transgressions. He cannot ignore the just demands of His nature. On the other hand, He does not want to condemn all mankind. He does not delight in that. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God desires all men to be saved. Interesting, we see that throughout the Old Testament, there's an abundance of evidence that God, while being holy and while hating sin, nonetheless, He is gracious. He's also merciful. And so God kept promising and providing what we call shadows or types or predictions, prophecies regarding this righteous rescuer who would provide for sinners in order to deliver them from his wrath. God begins to sin and make very clear there's a promise he's making that he's going to do something to help people because he's got his wrath must be poured out. It must be uh, carried out. And so after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, right at the beginning of the story of human existence, Adam and Eve rebel against God. When they ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what happened? Well, immediately, the fellowship that they had enjoyed with God became abruptly um, interrupted in the sense that they are now hiding from God, they are now attempting to avoid God, and they're realizing that they don't any longer want to deal with God because they're bothered by shame. They're bothered by their guilt. And the God who saves at that moment revealed His first promise of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. He promises that the offspring of the woman is going to crush the evil one who placed this temptation before Adam and Eve. And then he says that this offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, is going to, is going to himself, going to be, uh, he'll be um, bruised on his heel. So he will go through suffering, but ultimately Satan himself will be destroyed. And soon thereafter, God covers Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal. They had already covered up themselves in shame, but God covers them with the skins of animal. What is he saying here? What is the point of this so early on in redemptive history? God is communicating that the consequences of sin is death. Death is what one receives when they defy God. And those animals had to die in order to say, here's a covering, here's some provision for you so that you will not have to die, an animal has died in your place to cover your guilt and cover your shame. And so from the earliest moments of history, God made it clear that the only way for sinners to be saved from the penalty of their sins, and that is death, that is the penalty of sin, the only way then to be saved from that is to have a substitute die in their place. And so sin sacrifices were offered to God in place of sinful people. And we find that throughout the Old Testament again and again. It starts there with the Passover lamb 
in Egypt, and then continues on the Day of Atonement once a year through a very formalized, prescribed manner that God gave them. Why is all this continually offered again and again of killing of animals one time after another? Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. So God ultimately says, I'm going to provide you an ultimate sacrifice. One day, I'm going to send you your own, my own Savior. Isaiah 53 is that helpful prediction of this one who would come, who would be pierced for our transgressions. He, this one would be crushed for our iniquities. It is the Lord who has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on this one, his servant, his suffering servant that he was going to send. And so God is not only holy, God is also merciful and gracious. He's continually promising, showing that there is going to be provision made. And then thirdly, I would just say that God is faithful. He promised a Savior, and he kept that promise for a Savior. And so we find the answer to the prayer of Asaph, who longed for in Psalm 79, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us, and forgive our sins for your name's sake. So when this angel then appeared in the scene here, dealing with Joseph, explaining the role of Jesus as one who would save his people from their sins, he was reiterating God's integrity. He was emphasizing that God is reliable. God is dependable. He is holy, yes. He is merciful, yes. But He is going to keep that promise, and you can count on it. To those who are hiding in shame, to those who are trying to avoid God, to those who are sort of covering up their sin, God offers a hope-filled message. He says, I am a saving God. I am sending you my son to be your savior. You can count on me. Because I love you, I am your deliverer. Sorry, because I love you, I am your deliverer. I am your rescuer. And therefore, stop trying to save yourself. Come to me and be saved. Everyone throughout the earth. That's the first point. We learn that about God. He's holy. He is gracious. He is faithful. Secondly, though, what does the promise of sending a Savior reveal to us about ourselves? It's so easy for us to downplay the wickedness and the moral corruption that exists in the human heart. Inside each one of us, we become so focused in our life on trying to get things right on the outside Everything else in our environment, everything else in terms of our life, get things in its proper place when the real problem is inside of us. I think about the poor folk who live in Flint, Michigan. Here they have plentiful water in that area. They have lots of water. I mean, they're right there near the Great Lakes. And they have beans to make sure that water gets to where it needs to go. They have decent air in that area. What's the problem? The problem is that they have water 
that has not been treated a certain way. It has acid in the water at one point there for a while. For years and years, they, tra they changed the source of the water. The water had a little bit of acid in it. The acid then began to interact with the old pipes that had lead in them. And therefore, the problem was people were turning on their spigots, drinking the water that for years and years they've been drinking. But now it was actually poisoning them. The problem was inside the pipes. Not in the rivers. Not in the lakes. It's in the pipes. And the problem is for you and me is our hearts. That's hard to grapple with because we oftentimes see the problem is always around us. We become very concerned about seeing our greatest problems are our situation. Our greatest problem is money. I need more money. My greatest problem is my surroundings, my environment. It's decisions that I may have made or not made properly or the the evil impact of those around me. We get so focused on what other people say and do. And obviously those are concerns. But our greatest problem is the evil that comes out of our hearts. From the moment we enter the world, our hearts are bent toward rebellion and self-will. Even the other day, here I am realizing we come home from being out of town and our wireless router is not working and so therefore we're using up all of our minutes that we pay for on our phone and we can't get it to, onto the internet and all of our little uh, gadgets are not working correctly and so I'm on the phone I'm calling the people that provide the service for that and, and uh, he said okay we'll send you one and, and we'll, you'll get there in 24 hours I'm like okay I can wait till that long so the 24 hours goes by and then that evening I'm looking and there's nothing and so I call them and waiting, 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 and guess what? I can get very impatient with whoever the customer service person is when I haven't received very good customer service. It's not their fault. The person I'm speaking to didn't cause the problem. They apologized, but boy, it's amazing how wicked my heart is that I feel free to say those things I'd never say to someone in person, but I say them to somebody on the phone, and what's the, what's the problem with all of us? Isn't that true of everything? Look what the Bible says here, Matthew 15. Jesus says this, Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Let's not blame anybody else. You can't blame your evil thoughts on anyone else around you. How about murderers or having a heart of full of hatred, adulteries, fornications, sex outside of marriage, thefts, false witness, slanders. For all, these are all the things that defile a person. So the pollution is not outward toward inward, it is from the inside out. And so that's why Jerry Bridges wrote so well in one of his books, he said, Jesus did not die just to give us a peace life to give us a purpose in life although that's true but he died to save us from the wrath of God what we need is a savior why because we're sinners <laughs> so it's a reminder to be able to acknowledge that before all of us to be honest to say our sins that grow in the soil of our heart what is the sin you're struggling with is it the sin of bitterness of resentment is it the sin of envy that you are so caught up in Facebook looking at what other people do that you can't enjoy your own life and what God has afforded to you? 
Is it that you twist and distort the truth and don't really shoot straight with people? You, you're lying and you're, you're deceiving people around you. You're stealing things. Perhaps your heart and mind are full of sexual lust and you just continually are focused on that day by day. Your heart is full of ingratitude. You have nothing that you seem like you really uh, were thankful for this past Thanksgiving. Maybe it's your heart that's full of explosive anger, out of control at times. Or maybe it's so tightly controlled that it's like a, a pressure cooker and you're just about ready to explode if any of the right situations were to unfold. Perhaps there's some sort of excess in your life, even like drunkenness. Would you look at me with the quote I've given you in your notes? From D.A. Carson, one of the professors I had and was blessed to have in seminary. I'm going to read along. You can follow along if you can read it. It's pretty small print. But if you can fill in the blank when I hesitate and pause, uh, feel free to do that at the end of each line. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent an or an artist. And if God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a... If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a... But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior that's a great quote so if nothing else by the giving of this promise of this name assigned to the baby the gender reveal occasion if nothing else we learn here is that i've had my heart exposed one more time that i have to come to grips with the fact that there is a lot of sin that just continually grows in the garden of my heart we all need a savior and then thirdly, what does the promise of the sending of a Savior reveal to us about Jesus' mission? And I won't be able to fully cover this at all, but I want us just to once again review this. What was Jesus' mission? A mission sent to a world that said, I don't want anything to do with you. I like to do my own thing. Thank you very much. I'm not going to submit to your reign and your rule. Did Jesus come to avoid and destroy the lost? Did he come to ignore and deplore the lost? Did he come to shame and blame the lost? No, Luke 19, verse 10 says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That which you treasure is something you'll seek after if it's lost, right? Something you treasure. For example, if you are preparing a meal and you, let's say you're preparing a sandwich and you open up the, the bag of bread and you uh, get out your bread and you're closing it up and you lost the little plastic tag thing that holds it together, how much time are you going to spend looking for that? I mean, it's a little piece of plastic. It has no great value at all. There are other ways to secure closed a bag of bread. But not too long ago, came back from uh, driving in our uh, used, new used car and 
somehow I've misplaced the key to this car. We have two keys, thankfully. Come to find out when I went to the dealership, it takes $250 to buy another key. I have not found the key, but I have looked for that key many, many times. Still can't find it. But the value of it causes us to look. Here's Jesus seeking and saving the lost. I find it interesting that the context of his words to seek and save the lost are recorded with this gentleman who was so hated. It's talking about God's, Jesus' interest in a man who was despised and he was dishonest. He was a man who was listed not just as a tax gatherer, but the chief tax gatherer. He's in charge of all these other people who are ripping everyone off, and he's in charge of this whole corrupt, hated institution. Zacchaeus was his name. And what do we know about him? He was a man who was height-challenged, right? He was, he was very short in stature. And I believe, possibly, it could be that he was a man who, because of, he was struggling with his height, sought to find greatness in other areas of his life. He was a man who worshipped money. And he didn't care who it was, who, who you were, he would rip you off. He would make sure that those who worked under him would rip off whoever they could find and gain what? Gain whatever he thought money could get him. And that was some sort of importance, a sense of importance, a sense of gaining stature in other people's eyes through some sort of luxurious, rich lifestyle. That's what he longed for. So when Jesus comes to town, he is so intrigued that someone like this would come in town. He's heard about the reputation of Jesus. He climbs the tree to be able to see him better, and Jesus stops and pauses and says, Zacchaeus, you come down from there. Here he is seeking and then, in, and then saving the lost. Religion tells us to depend on ourselves through our own exertion, through our own effort. We'll somehow save ourselves and get to God. But Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. I find it fascinating that another account of someone's testimony in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul, who at one time described himself as someone who was so twisted in his thinking, he was so confused in what he had believed and thought was the most important things in life. He was trying to save himself and destroy those who he thought were messing up his religious uh, practice that he said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. He was a guy out of control. And he said, yet I was shown mercy. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't realize what I was doing. I was so duped by the evil one. He said, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Now watch this. Among whom I am foremost of all. He saw himself as the worst sinner ever. Can you identify with that? Do you link yourself up with him and say, you know, I see myself as one of the worst sinners? Or do you see yourself as someone who puts a scale and tries to say, well, I'm better than this guy, that's for sure, but I'm not as bad as that guy, and, and you're constantly measuring yourself by other people? Or have you forgotten the standard? The standard was perfection. The standard is to keep the law perfectly. 
to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself all the time, 24-7. Thankfully, Jesus said, I did not come into this world to judge the world, but to save the world. And Jesus came to be a sin sacrifice that exhausts God's just and holy wrath. According to 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is, it says, the propitiation of our sins. You see, that's a fancy 25-cent word. It's worth learning, propitiation. What does it mean? It means that Jesus absorbs and bore in himself the full brunt of God's wrath. He didn't just turn it aside. He absorbed it all. He drank all of the drops of the cup of God's wrath that was meant for us when he was on that cross. And therefore, those who believe upon him, the burden of that penalty for that, all those infractions that we've committed against God have now been from the past, from the present, and from the future, whatever we may do in the future, all of those have now been fully dealt with by his death on the cross. And so we understand then that Jesus, through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, fully met all the requirements of God's justice. And this is taken now, helps us understand how Jesus saves us in three tenses. This is in your notes. I want to real quickly cover this. It's important that we know that we are saved in three different ways. For example, we are saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin, Titus 3, 5. He saved us according to his own mercy. It's, it's past tense, 2 Timothy 1, 9. God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace. It is because of the work of Jesus that we also know that we are being saved from the power of sin. And that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. There's two different groups of people in this world. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And that has to do with the fact that we're being sanctified, made more and more like Jesus. And thirdly, Jesus will save his people from the presence of sin. And there's many indications of that, but Romans 5 talks about we shall be saved by his life. The resurrection life will overcome the effects of the curse and even death. Scripture makes it clear, Jesus did not accomplish 85%, you know, only a certain percentage of the work the Father assigned to do, because when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's complete. It was not repeated over and over and over again. It was done once for all. Now, let's be honest. We've had to admit this morning, or maybe you're still trying to come to the point of admitting, we don't see oftentimes the sinfulness of sin. It's so easy to get deceived, so easy to somehow justify, rationalize, minimize sin. It's rather simple and easy to look lustfully at a beautiful woman and say, well, I'm just admiring something, someone that's beautiful. And not see the dangers or the ugly aspects of that lingering, lustful look. 
Gossiping on the phone doesn't seem to be that big of a deal, doesn't seem that destructive. Because to the person who at the time is sharing all these things on the phone or in texting or online somehow, they may believe it's beautiful to be able to pass on all these incredibly interesting details about this other person's actions or statements or what they did or did not do. My friend, we need a Savior every day. And Jesus helps us overcome temptation and the struggles that we have in our hearts. He helps us by providing us the Holy Spirit. He's given us someone who's empowering us, helping us, reminding us, pointing us to the gospel day by day. It is Jesus who can deliver us from sin also because he prays for us. Hebrews 7.25. If you've never meditated on that verse, there's a great verse to meditate on during this season. Ever lives to make intercession for you. It is Jesus who lives in us. And he never grows tired. He never grows frustrated. He never gives up on you. The Spirit of God, even though we forget about him and get distracted, the Spirit of God keeps pointing us back. Remember, it's the Savior who died for you, who now lives for you. Don't forget him. I wonder if there's some this morning who are discouraged about your lack of victory over sin in your life. If you're honest, you would basically have to admit that you are somewhat downcast because maybe it's been a long time that you've been struggling. Maybe it's because of all of the endless failures that you see in your life that you constantly think, I'm going to do better this week and I don't do better. Endless failures to keep God's commands. May I call you today, come to the Savior. Draw close to Him. He calls you to rely on Him and His spiritual successes. He calls you to rely on His triumph over the evil one. Maybe you're here this morning and you are tempting. You're being tempted to get even with someone. You are just so frustrated and hurt by someone who's wronged you. May I remind you, Jesus will fight for you. He will repay those who have committed evil against you. He will hold them accountable. He will mete out justice in his time. Jesus, your Savior, will save you from perhaps another struggle you may be having, and that's hopelessness or or despair. He's able to save you from a lifetime of bitterness and resentment. He will save you from yourself, from your guilt, from your enemies, and from your self-absorbed life. But let me conclude this morning by just reminding you one simple but very well-known truth, if you know anything about the Bible. There's only one who can save, like Jesus. Jesus is not one deliverer among many, as if there are many choices and options in this world. He is unique. There's none like him. And how do we know that? Acts 4.12. If you have your Bible, would you turn there with me? Acts 4.12. He said, I thought we could get through sermon without going back to Acts. Nope, we're back to Acts one more time. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in many ways, with many options. No, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. You see, true deliverance 
cannot be found apart from turning to Jesus Christ in faith and turning away from sin that is called repentance. The Bible does not suggest, suggest that you be saved through Jesus. According to this verse is what? It commands you. It commands everyone to turn from your sins and turn to Christ and be saved. The Bible demands that you give up all other substitute saviors and fully rely on Jesus, your Savior, your Deliverer, and Him alone. May that be your heart response today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider the wonders of Jesus, the one who is Jehovah can save. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that there is a saving hope for each of us who struggle with sin. Lord, we all have so many different angles of struggle in our hearts. Many of us feel so divided, and frustrated. Others feel uh, condemned and guilty and ashamed. Others of us, Lord, are indifferent. We seem to be unbothered by it. We seem to have at some point lost any kind of concern about the impact of our sin against you or other people. Lord, our hearts are so wicked. We thank you that you have provided to us a Savior. And I pray, Lord, today as we are called now to this table of fellowship with Jesus our Savior, may this be a sweet time of being reminded of His saving work. May we find hope in Him. May we find joy in Him. May we find greater courage and strength to fight against the battle of sin. And Lord, may we also hear Him whispering to us, reminding us of His grace and love and peace that are provided through His saving work by His Son, Jesus, on the cross. We pray in His name. Amen.